0: Well, nothing, I think, presents a symbol of Christmas at this time like a nativity scene. And we have them all around, including one in this auditorium this morning. It's there that uh, the focus of attention is the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why last year I was a little troubled. Because I had built our very first manger scene, invested quite a bit of money in our nativity only to come out to find that somebody along the way decided they would steal our baby Jesus. And I thought, well, maybe they need Jesus. I mean, there's so many uh, illustrations from that, but there really is no Christmas without Christ. And when you think about that nativity scene, and you think about the center of attention being a baby, you note around it are others, others. And uh, who's there? Mary and Joseph, of course, the shepherds, and uh, sometimes the wise men are there, but um, they were a lot later on the scene than our nativity. But what's not at the nativity usually in someone's yard or some courthouse lawn it is a character that absolutely was at the manger. That character is found in Revelation chapter 12, And he's known as the red dragon. I think it'd be quite interesting, as a matter of fact, if you put a nativity scene out, and there you had the baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and the animals around, and then someone look and say, is that a dragon? Revelation 12 tells us about the nativity, tells us that there was a red dragon who was there ready to actually devour the child. That. One is the enemy who is the enemy of all God's people. And whenever it was, we have studied this last week in Revelation 12, that the dragon could not devour the child because the child is, in fact, the Messiah, protected by God Almighty, who is God in the flesh, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father to the throne, and we read this in Revelation 12, the dragon turned his attention then, his his fury and his wrath on God's people. There's a growing sense, uh, I think, in America right now, especially among God's people, that there are ill winds blowing. This is not necessarily bad or something that we should necessarily be too concerned about for the church, because oftentimes when the enemy begins to attack God's people, there's a purity and a power that comes through the church in an unprecedented way. We're not to be surprised, Peter said, by the fiery ordeal that we would go through that would happen as a result of the attack of Satan on the church. Right here at this time of the year, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ came, but he came in a very dark, difficult, and dirty world. And that's the world we live in. There's a song that we sing at Christmas. It's one of my favorites. God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismayed. You know the rest of that? Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us from Satan's power. If you were here last week and you were in uh, the study, you recognize with us that uh, Satan is very powerful. Uh, he is persuasive and he is our mortal enemy. But we have today courage, and we can be encouraged because there is a way that we overcome that enemy, and Matt read about that this morning, and I want to focus on that very fact, that we have a way to overcome the enemy. Look in verse 11 of chapter 12 in Revelation, it's here that the Scriptures teach us, and they overcame or conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Let me give you the situation. The situation is this. John's receiving a, re- a revelation from God about Jesus Christ in a difficult, dark, and dirty time. He is himself suffering persecution, the churches as well, and he sees a future time, a future time, when Satan will pour out his full force of fury on God's people. So while the church now, as John is receiving this revelation, while the church now in the first century is suffering persecution, John is told through this revelation, there will be a day in which Satan will pour out all of his fury against God's people. But be of good courage. Because even though the enemy comes against God's people, There is victory in Jesus Christ. And we Christians are called overcomers regularly, especially in the book of Revelation. And at the very end of time, God's people will indeed win. They'll win. So want you see the situation here, there is a war going on, and it is at the very end of time. So John sees the end of time, just before the coming of Christ, just before Christ returns. I'm hoping somebody returns our Jesus this year. Maybe it was a joke. But more than that, I'm looking for Jesus to return because he's coming back. John sees this, and just before the return of Christ, there is a war in heaven. Look in verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven. Now who initiates this war? This war is in the heavenlies. Don't think about just simply before the throne of God, but in the upper atmosphere there is in that, pa- in that place a war, a spiritual battle, a cosmic fury that goes on. And who initiates this battle is not Satan, but Michael, who is Michael. Michael is known as an archangel, and with other angels, they fight. Look at this. They fight against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels do what? So, Satan is always, always picking a fight, but in this occasion, it is Michael who begins the battle with his angels against Satan and Satan's angels. So, Satan is fighting back to no avail, to no avail. So, I don't know much about this battle, nor do you, and it would be wrong to speculate on everything that happens in this battle. We just know this, that Satan is going to fight Michael. Michael and the archangel Archangel and his angels are going to overcome Satan. What are angels, by the way, just in case you're wondering? We see a lot of angels this time of year. We see them all over the place, on cards, on Christmas trees, also over the nativity scenes. Well angels were God's created beings to do His bidding and be ministers to the people that He created. Satan is indeed an angel, created for those reasons, to minister to God's people, to do God's bidding. Satan was a type of an archangel. He actually led music in heaven and worship against uh, worship uh, for God, and then he became prideful as he looked at the throne of God desiring to be like God and as a result as a result was cast out of the presence of God's throne room but had ability as we read in the old testament to come before God and do something that is absolutely amazing and that is to accuse accuse God's people before the throne in fact the name satan means adversary He is the deceiver, but also carries the idea that he is the accuser or the one who accuses the brethren. We read this in Job. Remember in Job where God was there on his throne, Satan comes before the throne and begins to accuse Job saying, you know what Job uh, serves you for? For what you give him. You take away his blessings and he will no longer serve you. What an accusation an accusation against a righteous man, and the only reason that he will serve you is because what you're doing for him. Quit doing all that you're doing for him, and he won't serve you anymore. Well, Satan was this powerful archangel who rebelled against God and is now an adversary of God and his people. Michael is a powerful angel. All angels are very powerful, but he was the one who has been left in charge of other angels. To the best of our understanding, an archangel has different responsibilities and authority. However, when you read about Michael in another place in the New Testament, the book of Jude, you find that Michael confronts Satan over, this is interesting, over the body of Moses. God buried Moses. No one knows where uh, Moses is was buried, and the devil wanted the body. Can you imagine this? The devil wanted the body of Moses, and you can imagine maybe what he wanted wanted that body for. And Michael contended with the devil over, over the body of Moses. And in Jude, verse 9, we read how that this great, strong, wonderful archangel Michael looked at Satan and said, The Lord rebuke you. What Michael said was that my authority is based on delegation from God Almighty. Michael the archangel did not freeze Satan. He didn't tell Satan what he could or could not do. He did not bind up Satan. You hear a lot of that language in certain churches that we're going to pray that Satan be bound. We're going to pray that we uh, have control over Satan and that we have some sort of power against him. But Michael, this great powerful angel, realized his delegated authority and that he was underneath God and did not have the ability to bind Satan or or decree anything to Satan, and he appeals to God Almighty. That's a great message to us today. Because we serve a, a, a powerful God, but because we serve a powerful God, we fight a formidable foe, Satan. And we don't have power and authority over him. But we do have power and authority in Christ to live victoriously. How? How does that happen? Well, I want to see this. This enemy is one who we do have power over, but how do we overcome him? And that's what I want to look at this morning, the ways in which we as believers who are fighting this enemy who is constantly against us, and again, I refer back to last week's message, the one who is constantly battling and strategizing against us. How do we overcome such a formidable foe that even Michael the archangel would not himself rebuke? We have three ways. And it's the ways in which the saints in the end, before Christ comes, overcomes the enemy. They overcome the enemy three ways. Number one, look at verse 11. They overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. Everybody say, blood of the Lamb. Blood of the Lamb. That's number one. How am I going to overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb? It's not positive thinking. It's not positive reinforcement. It's not getting around a bunch of believers where two or three are gathered together and taking a verse out of context to think we can overcome the enemy or telling Satan what he can and cannot do by praying that he be bound, praying that he would be frozen, praying a hedge of protection. No, those things we can sometimes do depending on what those things are but we do not have delegated authority to speak to the enemy nor the devil and tell the devil nor the enemy what to do but we have power over the enemy and where does that power come from not from us it comes from, well, number one, the blood of the lamb. Look in verse 11. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Now notice the word conquered. It means that they have this victory as if it were already, uh, had already occurred. It is, in a, it is kind of in this tense that says, though they have not yet won, they have won. They have these Christians in the end times have a confidence that they are absolutely going to overcome the enemy. Now, why are they having to overcome the enemy? Well, they're having to overcome the enemy because the enemy is always opposing believers. He's always seeking to distract us, deceive us, or even in the end, Jesus said, to destroy us. Don't think for a moment that you as a believer could ever escape the battle against this enemy and his angels. He is an adversary and he studies us. He sets traps for us. He's always thinking about how to trip us up. You cannot escape that. When Paul was in Thessalonica, it was one of his favorite places to be, and he was preaching the gospel, he was shocked at how quickly the people in Thessalonica left their gods, their false religions and followed after Christ. He was amazed at the power of God. Now, he knew the Word of God was powerful. He understood the work of the Spirit. But he was absolutely taken aback as how much and how quickly God worked in their lives. However, however, because of Satan's attack on Paul personally in Thessalonica, he had to escape with his life from that city, having only been there like two weeks preaching. So after preaching and being being there as, as God worked, And and then leaving after two weeks, not able to disciple these people, he was greatly concerned that Satan would come and lay a trap for these new believers that they would fall into and therefore not grow in their faith. It gives us some insight on how the devil works. Because the word in chapter 2 that Paul uses for a trap is temptation, is a way in which the devil sneakily comes along and places arguments and ideas in our minds that Chips us up and causes us to doubt our faith. And Paul is so concerned that that would happen to Thessalonica. It gives us insight in how the devil works against us. He is always opposing us, always setting traps, always trying to trip us up and to trick us. And here's what we always know about the devil. He is an adversary and he has been doing this work since the beginning of time. What work? Tripping people up. If any of us think that we can make it through a day without the power of God, without submitting to his authority, we're going to be sadly mistaken because the devil has been working at tripping people up for the time of history all the way to the Garden of Eden. He studies you. He knows your moves. He knows your conversation. Be careful what you say aloud. Be careful what gossip you repeat. Be careful where you let your eyes go. Be careful where you begin to behave irrationally. Because the enemy, whether it's the devil or his angels, are always studying God's people in order that he might oppose us with traps that we would easily fall in. Do you have any traps like that? None of us are unique. I'm telling you, if I were to go to your Christmas party and you would set out a bowl of cottage cheese before me, I would say, that is not a temptation. Look how disciplined he is, he's not, he's just, he's not eating, eating much, he's, he, he just put a little spoonful of cottage cheese on his plate and then I pretend to eat it. However, if you put my mom's pecan pie on that table, that's a whole nother level of temptation. We all have our own challenges. Depending on how we grew up, depending on how we lived, depending on our temperament, and on and on it goes. Our experiences, our backgrounds, what's been done to us, those things that have, have happened that we had no control over and some that we did. Decisions we made and decisions were made for us. And the devil knows everything about you. He's got somewhere along the line some sort of a review on you. He understands your past and your weaknesses. And this is why it is so important to understand, if we're going to overcome, it will not be with superficial means, but with spiritual power that begins with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are told that the enemy is our adversary who is accusing us, always accusing the brethren. We read again at this later in chapter 12, he's accusing us before the Father. What is he accusing us of? Well, it's one thing if he were accusing us of things we never did. It's another thing when he's accusing us of things that we did. And why, I believe Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 do not give the devil an opportunity. He's wanting to trip us up. He's wanting us to fall in our faith in order that he might accuse us before our Father. So how do we overcome? Well, here it is, the blood. What is the blood about? Well, the blood is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross. The blood that we overcome the devil with is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for us when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin at Calvary. Jesus was talking to his disciples in John chapter 12. He said, now that judgment is coming into the world, now, now that judgment is coming into the world, he was speaking about a present time event. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What was Jesus talking about? Now I'm about to judge the ruler of this world, he's gonna be cast out. What is he talking about? Well, then he says to the disciples, When I am lifted up from all the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then he clarified, uh, John did clarify this for us. He said this to show us what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, Jesus said, the judgment that's coming on the enemy is going to come at the time I'm lifted up on the earth, and that is when I die. Jesus came to die to offer to us the forgiveness of sin through his blood so that when the accusation is made against Jerka hey as satan begins to tell god what i've done and those accusations are true i have one incredible defense attorney the Lord Jesus Christ, who could say, what are you talking about, Satan? That's under my blood. That's why Paul said in Romans eight thirty one, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who can bring condemnation? If God's for us, who can be against us? Because the lamb's blood was shed, We have an answer to the accusations. The accusations from the enemy are ceaseless. They are not meritless, but they are meaningless because we are under the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean from all our sins. I love these songs. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the lamb. His blood, his precious blood, his blood was not just blood of another spotless lamb, but his blood had the power to cleanse the hearts of men. His blood has the power to heal my body and set my spirit free. I'm so glad that his precious blood still flows from Calvary. No other blood could heal my broken body. No other blood could save my sin-sick soul. And no other blood could conquer death and win the victory. No other blood but that the blood that Jesus shed for me. That's what Peter says in First 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, inherited, futile futility uh, of the ways in which you inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things. What were you ransomed with? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why blood? We read in Leviticus that life is in the blood. We study in Scripture that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. John wrote in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Because there is a requirement of blood being shed for the forgiveness of sin. God sent his son, his only son, as a lamb, the lamb of God, who came to shed his blood so that we could be cleansed from our sin. The writer of Hebrews said, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Paul said, In him, that's Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's a song that asks a question. Are you washed in the blood? There is no doubt in my mind that you and I can come under the accusations of the devil. And if we are not aware of our victory in Jesus Christ through his blood, we can become very frail in the fight against this foe and then just kind of wither under his accusations because he will say, don't you know who you really are? And he can point his bony finger in your face and remind you of all your failings, of all your rebellion and all your sin against God. But what do we do? With that church we overcome him and we say hey look at the scoreboard you lost at the cross and my sin is washed clean by the blood of the lamb Satan is no match he has no match for the blood of Christ and neither does your sin Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.13 but now in Christ Jesus you who are once far off from God have been brought near how? through the blood of Christ when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper and we we're going to celebrate that this morning he said to his disciples in Matthew 26 this is my blood the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins y'all Satan hates it when Christians are happy. And Christians ought to be happy when Satan is mad. And we take the communion this morning and we say, You've got nothing to accuse me of because I'm washed in the blood. You are making God glad and Satan mad. What a confession. In Hebrews thirteen twelve, the Bible says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, purify his own people through his blood. There are a lot of Christmas songs I'm sure you're familiar with at this time of year. New ones being written all of the time. This was not so new, but uh, one that's kind of maybe familiar to you if you uh, are a Dave Matthews fan. If you don't know who Dave Matthews is, ask someone. David Matthews wrote the Christmas song, The Christmas Song. He said after he heard this quote by Oscar Wilde, an Irish writer. uh, Oscar Wilde said, if Christ was alive now, the one thing I wouldn't be is a Christian. Fans groaned at that, which Matthew then responded, I didn't say it. Oscar Wilde did, as if he could pawn off his thoughts on someone else." The Christmas song, if you've heard it, it starts off really well. It goes like this. She was a girl. He was her boyfriend, soon to be his wife, to take him as her husband. A surprise on the way, any day, any day. One healthy little giggling, dribbling baby boy. The wise men came, three made their way, to shower him with love. While he lay in the hay, shower him with love, love, love. Love, love. Love was all around. But then he gets off track. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the tree, he said, Oh, daddy-o, I can see how it soon will be. I came to shed a little light on this dark scene. Instead, I fear I spill the blood of our children all around. The blood of our children all around. I had to listen to that song over and over. I've heard that song before. I never really understood the lyrics. It's one of those songs where you just kind of listen and passively it goes by. And I said, listen to that a little closer. And then I looked up the lyrics and I thought, no, it was not that Jesus came. And as a result, blood was shed. Yes, blood was shed when Jesus came. Herod, like a dragon, killed babies. And lots of people would die over the years because of their faith. But it is the red, blood red dragon that's spilling blood, shedding blood. And it is Jesus who had his blood shed in order that we might have victory in Jesus Christ. It took the shedding of blood for us to be saved. So how does the saints... Uh, how, How do the saints overcome the enemy in the end? They plead the blood. Secondly, not only is it their confession, but it is their commitment to the kingdom. Look at uh, verse 11 again. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The testimony here is very important. They have a testimony. Anyone who has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ has a testimony, has a testimony. We were uh, enjoying a Christmas celebration yesterday with our family, and my uh, uh, youngest son, Graham, said, you know, it wasn't long ago we were around campfires With our college group, and we just asked everyone at the campfire to share their testimony. And because there were four college boys there who didn't have a real testimony, all four of them came to realize they needed to be saved and gave their life to Jesus Christ. And one of them happened to be my oldest son, Tanner. Here's what we read. They have overcome the enemy by... The blood, not theirs, but Jesus's, but they have a commitment and their testimony that if you've been washed by the blood, you have a public witness. Jesus said, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever will deny me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These overcame not only because they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but they lived like they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They had a public profession. They publicly confess Jesus Christ in a dangerous, dark, and dirty day. At the very end of time, when the Antichrist is doing his worst, Christ is doing his best through his own people who are confessing their faith in Jesus Christ. Public proof. Not just profession, but proof. They bore testimony to the Word of God. They bore testimony to the Word of God. It wasn't only what they said about themselves that mattered. It was what their lives stated about the Bible. Their lives stated by the way in which they lived, they believed the Word of God to be true. The Word of God and their lives were a complement to each other. They didn't just say they believed, they lived it out. They didn't just have a profession of faith, they had a proof of that faith. The Word of God directed their lives, and their lives demonstrated their trust in God's Word. This is how the saints, in the end of time, overcome the dragon, the Antichrist. They are saved, they are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and as a result, their lives back up that testimony. Now, it's not in reverse order. They don't live in a way to prove they're worthy of God. They are unworthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. They come by faith, trust in Jesus, and are saved by grace and grace alone. But once they are saved, do you know, do you note here, that their lives back up their story? How do we overcome the, the enemy? Not only our salvation, but the way in which our lives demonstrate we actually believe what is said in this book. It's not the word of our testimony that brings weight. It's our testimony to this word that brings weight to a watching world. There are lots of testimonies people have. I've heard lots of experiences that people have said that they have enjoyed or endured when it comes to Christ. But what is powerful and overcomes the enemy fighting against us is our devotion and commitment to the kingdom principles from this word. So it's not the word that they spoke It is the word of God that they lived out that was a defeat for the enemy. Are you following that? I guess we could say it pretty simply. It's not what they said. It's what they did. When the enemy came in the garden, you you remember the Garden of Eden. An enemy came against Eve, and the enemy said, let's have a little Bible study. That's what he did. Let's have a little Bible study. Let's talk about, let's discuss the Word of God for a little bit. Has God really said, is this what God really said? Do, do y'all remember this? Say amen or Genesis 3. I know it's a paraphrase. I'm just, wait, it doesn't say that. Yes, it does in understanding what Satan was trying to accomplish here. Let's have a little Bible study. Let's talk about God's Word and let's discuss it. Here's the can I just, some, do you like bottom lines sometimes? There are so many times the Bible doesn't need to be discussed, it just needs to be obeyed. And in the garden, Eve decided she'd have a little Bible study with the devil who was after her to corrupt her, to deceive her, to destroy her. Why? Again, he is the mortal enemy of God's people. And instead of the discussion, she should have had a devotion. And as a result, she was overcome by the enemy. Fast forward to the end of time, just before Christ returns, you have people that are being persecuted by the enemy at an unprecedented level, and they overcome. Why? Because they're saved and devoted to the Word of God. And there is no discussion about it. They just simply obey. They have overcome because they obey God's word, and they live in that kind of security. How is it today, y'all, how is it today that you and I will overcome the enemy? It begins with a salvation and then proceeds with a devotion to the things of God, the word of God, and therefore an obedience to his commands. That's very simple, straightforward, not difficult. Revelation is not that hard to understand sometimes, is it? The reason some of you are feeling so defeated today by the foe is you have not been devoted to God's Word. Thirdly, lastly, Christians overcome Satan by the word of testimony proven through this delineation because of their salvation, because of their life and devotion to the Lord, they are committed to the kingdom so much that they're willing to die for Christ. But seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said. And here they are. They are ones who, look what the Bible says, love not their lives even unto death. You mean they were willing to die for Christ? Yeah. They loved Something more than they loved their own flesh. And all of us understand what it is to love someone more than we love ourselves. If you're a parent and you have a sick child, you would take the place of that sick child in a New York second. I don't know what it is about that other than God's common grace that we love children that much now when they're teenagers all of that changes <laughs> but here are those who love someone more than they love their own flesh what is the enemy always doing? He's trying to cause us to love everything and anything but God. Here they are conquerors, and they are winning the game. They are conquerors, and they've overcome. The game's over. It's over, and Satan's ramping up, as John says, his his efforts against the people of God. And if you were to look around in the world and you say, it just seems like the enemy's forces are fighting at a feverish pitch, more so than I've ever seen in my life, I think you might be right. Because as we get closer to the coming of Christ, he is going, Satan, to fight us more than he's ever fought us. And in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, he's going to uh, pull out all the punches against God's people. Why? Why? When I was watching my boys play football, I always loved it. When I'm looking at the clock, and our boys were on this side of the scoreboard, where we were winning so badly that the referees began a running clock. That means they don't stop the clock for anything, which means, it means this, it means the game's going to last a lot uh, less time, and and we've already won. There's no knots here. We've already won. We're already celebrating. We already won. And as you watch that, what you see on the other side of the field is desperation. They know they've lost, but there's something in an athlete, and often probably many of you, when you know you've been defeated to fight harder than you've ever fought, right? I saw it in a bowl game yesterday. At least we got a field goal. Meaningless field goal. And this is the enemy. The scoreboard says game over. And here he is fighting like he's never fought before. But the overcomers overcome Satan because they are not in love with this world. Satan's battle plan. It's pretty simple, brutally simple. In fact, it is to eliminate those who serve God. If he could, he would kill them all. But because he can't destroy them, he'll do everything he can to destroy their faith. But here are those who will not bow. They will not bend to Satan. They're committed to things of God, gives them courage, like the apostle Paul, who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The devil, though, he is constantly seeking whom he may devour, whom he may devour. He cannot devour the believer. He cannot devour these believers, and he cannot devour you. But what he will do is what he tries to do to them, and that is to discourage, to discourage, to discourage. Satan hates our singing. He hates our rejoicing, and he hates our happiness in Christ. Look in verse 12. Therefore, Oh, rejoice, O heavens, all you who dwell in them. There are two types of people. Those who dwell in heaven, those who dwell on the earth. The heaven dwellers are the believers. Those who are saved. Those who are on the earth are those who are not saved. Revelation is a book that says that those who dwell in heaven are victors in Jesus Christ. However, Satan is constantly, constantly making his accusations against believers. The witch. Believers overcome by reminding the enemy that he was defeated at the cross. He is, though, not going to stop to try to discourage, to discourage believers and disable believers. And I get the question all the time now that I'm walking around. How did you break your arm? And uh, the story gets better all the time. <laughs> at first, I fell 12 feet. Now it's three stories. Now it is. You know, the the neighbor's puppy was underneath me, and I. Grabbed it last moment, and then of course, I didn't realize the toddler was there and grabbed the toddler. I mean, all this stuff, and I just fell off a ladder, y'all. And uh, I went to the hospital, you know. I'm like, and 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 probably, like, I'm looking at this, I'm going, damn, I'm more you know aggravated at myself than anything. Like, did it hurt? No, did it hurt my pride? Yes. So I'm there, and um, the uh, doc comes in, she says, Well, you're you know, fortunate. What do you mean by fortunate? She goes, Because the guy on the other side of you just came in the emergency room and he broke both of his arms falling off a ladder. And then, you know, you're wearing this around and if you have something like this, everyone's, what'd you do, what'd you do? You tell them you fell off a ladder and they say, oh, let me tell you about And then you have this story about how this person fell off a ladder and they died. They broke their neck. So you get feeling a little better about, okay, well, you know, it's just a broken arm. But it's debilitating. I mean, David, you helped me butt my shirt today. Thank you for that, brother. Probably TMI. I just couldn't get that button done. I mean, I'm just a little little disabled, not, not like, you know, others for sure. That's what Satan wants to do. He can't break your neck and he can't kill you. But he does want you to be disabled in the work. And he'll do whatever he can to put these traps out in front of you to tempt you. He knows how to tempt you. He knows your weakness. He has vast experience in temptation. He knows how to tempt you and when to tempt you. He knows some of you get tempted more when you're alone than when you're around others. Others of you get tempted when you're around people and you begin to show off. He knows your temperament. He knows how you get worried or if you don't get worried at all. So he knows how to stress you out or he knows how to make you content with things you ought not be content with. In other words, he knows you. He knows you. And he wants to disable you so that you're not the conqueror that God made you. He does that through discord and negativity. There are some Christians that are born more against and they are born again. He knows how to cause us to trip up with our tongue. He knows how to cause us to trip up with our eyes, with our mind. He knows how to trip us up with our materialistic natures. Why? Because he hates the people of God and his. Attack on us is for the purpose of disabling God's people from walking in joy and victory. That's why I I love that song, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing dismay. Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. Satan may make accusations, but we turn and say, but remember the blood, he might want to confuse us, but we say, oh, I don't have to be confused. I know what God has said in his word. He wants to persecute us and tempt us, but we understand our destination is not this world. Our home is not here. It's in heaven so that we can love him more than we love even ourselves. And you talk about something that makes the devil mad and God glad. It's when believers love Jesus more than they love their own lives let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to study your word. Thank you that we have a defeated foe, that he is, I know now desperate, but he is cast away. He is outwitted by you. And Lord, you have given us victory even over our enemy. And may we be encouraged with that this morning. May we be remembering constantly the blood that was shed for us to wash us of our sin that make us right. In Jesus' name, amen.